Welcome to The Threat Show, powered by Fletch. You may have a lot of vulnerabilities out there that are high enough profile in media that'll mm -hmm. get your higher-ups asking you questions about them, but developing the triage ability to know for your environment what's a, I need to jump up and down and wake people up to patch this versus something that, yeah, you've got a lot of problems, but that probably isn't one of them. This week, we sit down with Todd Haverkos, a manager of global vulnerability management at a financial exchange based in Chicago with two decades of experience working in security. Todd gives critical vulnerability management advice and gives tips on how to avoid some of the most common mistakes found in the field. The team also discusses four major threats you need to know about. Enjoy the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Threat Show. I'm Robert Wagner. With me, I have my co-host, Darian Kinlan, VP of Technology at Fletch. Hi, Darian. Hey, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. Chris Wilder couldn't be with us uh, today. He's busy uh, hunting things down with his research team. He'll be joining us again next week. In the meantime, we have special guest Todd Haverkos. Hey, Todd. Hey, how's it going? Always a pleasure. Todd's awesome. He's the manager of global vulnerability management at a financial exchange, a large one in Chicago. He's also an avid picketball and racquetball evangelist, as well as a weekend warrior drummer and bassist. Welcome to the show, Todd. Thank you for having me, Robert. It's, uh, it's always always a great opportunity to chat with with Robert and any anybody who has a good taste to associate with. Thanks, man. Definitely appreciate it. We'll be talking with Todd a little bit later about vulnerability management. Todd's got a lot of experience in this space. So we're going to be talking specifically about some of the mistakes and pitfalls people fall into, hopefully help you avoid those pitfalls in vulnerability management. But first, we're going to do the burn down for the threats. It looks like we've got some malware here, some really interesting Python dependencies. If you have developers uh, in your organization, you need to make sure that they're aware of this and some more fun with Google. So let's dig into it. What's our first one here? The first one's actually a well-known threat group uh, called Fin7. They're focused on cyber criminal activity across basically the globe, multiple different industry verticals. But what's unique about this particular group is that they've now weaponized a number of brand new exchange vulnerabilities to actively go after and compromise organizations who haven't yet patched these particular vulns. Some of these are ones we've covered in past threat shows. And we, we said, you know, this is going to become a thing, right? Exactly. And the fact that most organizations aren't, you know, deploying exchange patches quickly, it's now, you know, being used as a, an adversary for attack by these particular threat groups. From that end, they've actually built out their own attack platform specifically using these vulnerabilities to compromise systems in mass. So this is like the next evolution when <laughs> patching fails. Now the attackers have not only weaponized it, but weaponized it in some sort of bulk automation effectively. This is becoming a huge theme too. The, the attackers are getting great at automating things. They have no problem hiring people to script stuff and build stuff and build code to automate things. Why do we have such a problem taking the same approach in the defenders uh, camp, right? We are not on top of automation like we should be. And, you know, the fact that they've got 
a slick UI now to mass compromise based off of these particular sets of vulnerabilities is just another hallmark of the fact that it, this is still a major issue for many organizations. Do we know if they're selling this? Not that we've seen from what it looks like the researchers that uncovered this particular tool seem to think that it's exclusively used by Fin7. However, it could potentially be attractive for them to sell it to other cyber criminal act- actors and for them to also use a similar type of tool moving forward in their operations too. So, you know, the fact that this has been going on now for at least the past couple of weeks and the fact that we're seeing more and more automation dedicated to it suggests that there really isn't a lot of seriousness around these sets of vulnerabilities and it's not being prioritized effectively. Right on. A couple of things you had said that I had some thoughts on. Uh, one was, you know, why aren't defenders automating uh, as attackers are? It just underscores, I think, the asymmetry of the threat where on the defender side, you know, you've got that A leg of the CIA triad to worry about. <laughs> Right. Uh, that av- availability for those who aren't familiar with the confidentiality and integrity and uh, availability leg of that. So with you know availability being front of mind for a lot of production environments, automation for things like patching, especially on something critical like an exchange server where things can go sideways, <laughs> that Darby th- th- dragons, as it were, right? And then on the other side, as far as the timing of it is interesting, uh, right over the U.S. holidays, we always seem to see an uptick in malicious activity like that. Why? Because got an awful lot of people on vacation, and exactly. uh, and and a lot of companies have change freezes. So it's it's very unfortunate timing. But anybody I think who has a big enough team that saw these threats coming, and was in the unfortunate position of having any on premises exchange servers still kind of knew that this was going to be a bit of a ticking time bomb. (laughs) Right. Which is a big reason why I think moving to Microsoft's cloud-based services instead of hosting your own is a Mm -hmm. huge advantage. It takes a lot of work off your plate. And right now that's what everybody needs, right? Is to try and get that work off their plate. You have to be so good to run an on-premises exchange server uh, and have so much staff and flexibility dedicated to it that one could argue that Microsoft maybe isn't even sharp enough to run exchange (laughs) servers as quickly as they need to in the modern threat landscape. (laughs) But probably faster than most on-prem teams. So you've got that as an advantage. You know, their their exchange environment, if you're going with their SaaS offering, is all patched for this now. So you'd be out of the woods if you'd done that. I hear what you're saying about automation, though. I remember when I was uh, an intrusion detection engineer at a large organization, we were terrified to put it in blocking mode because no one could tell us, (laughs) you know, what the impact would be. We didn't have a test environment to, to try it out in. I mean, even if we did, it would be different traffic flowing to that environment. So, right. um, And who's writing those signatures on the vendor end? And uh, right? what, the, what is the quality of the signatures? And, exactly. you know, I've, I've been doing this long enough to remember when a certain large antivirus vendor <laughs> declared how 
.dll, the hardware abstraction layer DLL for Windows, they declared that malware. Yeah. And that was a bad day for people who pushed those dat files immediately. So, yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah. It used to be where I would never apply patches uh, after Patch Tuesday until I saw that other people were successfully deploying it. That's changed. I mean, Microsoft has gotten a lot better with integrity of their patches and updates. So Indeed. Although some of the Windows Server engineers I, I work with recently might uh, might wrinkle their nose a little bit at that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. What we got next, Darren? Yeah, what's next is actually a different type of threat group that Kaspersky identified and has been mm. tracking. They call it Blue Noroff, but it's known by most of the threat researchers as uh, Lazarus in the community. Ah, yes. This particular threat group's been around for a long, long time. But what's unique about their tactics change recently is that they're now bypassing mark of the web quarantining operations that normally happen within Windows environments where Microsoft will actually flag and mark any sort of files downloaded from the internet through Chrome or Edge so that you know when someone tries to open the file, they say, hey, are you sure you downloaded this from the internet before you actually load it? And so by bypassing this particular mechanism, they can get malicious code to run without any sort of user interaction. Oh, man. It's a pretty bad set of vulnerabilities related to this issue. Clearly, they've now weaponized it because they're not seeing, again, organizations deploy these patches on a regular basis. They've been successful in compromising a number of other organizations. And are we just, we're, we're seeing this as an, an emerging thing, right? This is a fairly new stuff we picked up out of OSINT, right? Uh, as right. Far as the so, goes. Yeah. I mean, bar, Mark of the Web evasions have been around for a bit of time, but as Microsoft shores up those gaps, attackers have found new ways to bypass that same mechanism. <laughs> so the approach isn't necessarily new, but these are brand new vulnerabilities from that standpoint. And Todd, would this even come into play in most of the environments you've been in? I mean, I, I'm assuming you don't allow people to just install anything <laughs> off the web anyway, right? Yeah, this is one where we're not jumping up and down, pulling all the patch now levers for this particular aspect of the Microsoft rollup. There were other aspects of the, the rollup in which this one was patched yeah. that, uh, that, that got our attention. But this one... Yeah, there there are other controls. You know, you you've got a web proxying that that buys you some protection. Then, of course, you know nobody's running with local admin. That's a long path to get there if you're right. in a more permissive environment. But that we could do an entire show on on that and the challenges oh, surrounding awesome. that <laughs> <laughs> for an organization of our maturity. This this is something that we're keeping an eye on as attack paths using it evolve, but it's it's not one making us jump up and down. Just gotcha. Yet. And and for listeners, that's important to note, right? At Todd's organization, they've implemented a lot of these controls, but at a lot of smaller orgs, people don't. They do have local admin uh, everywhere. They, they aren't using maybe a, a good proxy or something like that. Uh, and even if you were, you know, some of this can be bypassed as well using some of the techniques we're talking about here. So you got to watch out for this kind of stuff and slowly start fighting the same battles that, that Todd has, you know, right? Eliminating things like local admin, or at least 
if you've got local admin, use Microsoft Laps, right? Their tool that randomizes the local admin password. There are bypasses for that as well, but it's way better than nothing. And you should be able to coax it for free out of your uh, Microsoft rep. Yes, that's a useful tool. A little limiting, but just having all your developers not be in the local admins group. That's that's a curiously large political fight with very developer-centric startups. Yeah, because they just need to get moving quickly. But there there are ways you can implement this without stopping your developers, but it takes time. We hire smart people, so we shouldn't have a problem, should we? We shouldn't. All right, moving on. We've got some malicious dependencies here. You know, it's funny, I was looking at this one earlier I, I first read it as Torchitron, which I think would actually be a much more fun name for this. But Torch Triton, bye bye. What, what do we need to know about this one, Darian? Yeah. So, I mean, in the Python community, if you're doing any sort of ML based analysis, like there's a high likelihood you're using PyTorch or some other open source library built upon this, this right. particular open source toolkit. It's extremely popular. And so what happened was that they discovered that there was actually a supply chain attack against this particular toolkit. It wasn't necessarily that PyTorch was compromised. It was actually a a dependent library that PyTorch leveraged. So effectively, what they discovered was that when you know, developers go to update the PyTorch library, this new malicious package would get downloaded, installed and executed as part of just normal usage of the PyTorch library. And it started collecting a ton of telemetry, a ton of information about the systems that were, were vulnerable to this particular attack. And people were confused at first and they realized, oh my gosh, you know, anyone can load malicious code, potentially cryptocurrency miners, using this particular vulnerability. Thankfully, package maintainer has since fixed or resolved the issue with later versions of PyTorch. You just have to upgrade. What's interesting about this is that Nuition came to help us saying that they were some sort of security researcher. I'm not sure if, if I necessarily buy that claim. Uh, a number <laughs> of people are like, yeah, this this is not quite you know, the, the reality of what's going on. But yeah. the fact that this happened is a sign of, you know, supply chain issues being a recurring problem. And not the first one either. In fact, we've seen a huge rise just in the last couple of weeks of different attacks designed to somehow replace or inject into a Python package specifically to to get into the you know the software supply chain and this is not an easy problem to solve is it todd no no it's not and i know that you've got a, a lot of listeners who may come from smaller shops this is one that even larger organizations certainly struggle with there's definitely some very very helpful software supply chain and sbom you know software bill of materials um, right sort of software out there designed to address this problem where you can identify th- these are a class of tools that kind of plug in to your source code management and then will identify what various dependent packages there are and what vulnerabilities there are for those and those are the things that are kind of shimmed in in a place where you can detect things like this but a couple things need to happen for those to work one you've got to have them ubiquitously uh, deployed on all right. your code. 
And for a mid-sized organization that might have a lot of custom development, is all their code in a central repository somewhere <laughs> to plug something like that into? Do you yeah. know what all of your custom code is? Do you have and often that the answer into that is no, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and so, so uh, finding where these little things w have a hard enough time, you know, getting uh, the Java supported, happy, uh, vulnerability free for that week level, and <laughs> right. uh, and something uh, more minor like this is generally less visible. It's not like you're going to go into add remove programs or SCCM tell you that, that this thing is installed on your system. You've got to be shimmed in pretty deeply or have uh, ubiquitous credentialed vulnerability scanning to have a shot at finding a vulnerable package like this on your systems. So it's necessarily a bit of a needle in a haystack for smaller organizations, even if they had the budget to purchase tooling that right. had the visibility to find it. Now, I know there's a couple of open source SBOM tools out there. I can't say necessarily whether one seems to be any better than the other, because I, I have just I haven't been in a, a production environment to try them out, but they are available. So that's good news. And I know like GitHub has Dependabot, Dependabot stands a good chance of finding this in your stuff. Sneak has, uh, but these are commercial products, right? You're going to have to pay for these. And those will, they're not SBOM tools. They're more designed to find whether a vulnerable dependency is in your code in the first place. Mm -hmm. Getting started with something like that, and they're probably open source uh, versions of, of similar type tools is the only way you can really know for sure if your devs got caught being tricked into downloading this package. And a lot of times the devs don't even hear this news. So you've got to build those bridges. If you have an InfoSec team, you got to build those bridges with the devs and start you know, talking to them about how you can help them and make it easy for them. So it's not a big deal. They can just make it part of their whole CICD pipeline. Makes sense. All right, moving on. Ah, just in time for New Year's, a masquerade. That's awesome. Right. right. <laughs> so effectively, what was discovered recently is how attackers are now using and abusing Google AdWords to deliver effectively tailored malicious advertisements, mm. <laughs> masquerades, essentially. But what's interesting about this particular change in tactics, it's not that the AdWords have not been used and abused like this. What's What's interesting about it is that They've now ramped up their operation focused specifically on GPUs and crypto wallets. Oh. So similar to, you know, the supply chain attack that we saw against PyTorch, which arguably is a library that you use to do massive computations on GPU specific systems. Again, we're seeing targeted activity towards resources that have tons of GPUs available. So what's interesting about this is just the fact that you know, if you have an environment, if you're an operation that's doing heavy compute, maybe you've got a ton of GPUs available, these particular attacks are likely to be increasing in going after your assets, primarily to essentially do crypto mining operations from what mm -hmm. we've seen. But it's it's real and it's here to stay effectively. That's interesting. And in, in, in cases like this, I'm surprised, and maybe they have, but I haven't heard anything about it. I'm surprised that the FBI can't just 
figure out what crypto wallets are getting the benefit of this malware and just, you know, like freeze that asset, right? Is that not possible? Can people not do that? Just say, you know what, this, this crypto wallet is not valid. Nobody can make purchases with it, right? Can they do that? I, because it's not centrally controlled, I'm yeah. assuming they can't, but somebody should be able to and just kind of basically quarantine the wallet. That, that would be a, an interesting fix for this kind of thing. That would be nice, except once once the coins are stolen, it gets routed through a whole bunch of other shells. So they're just going to transfer it out anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um, exactly. <laughs> so it's it's kind of like a dynamic DNS for your crypto yeah. wallet. Yeah. Exactly. So. It's like a whack-a-mole scenario. <laughs> Have you seen much of this pop up in your space, Todd, where people are just trying to steal your compute power to make money? We've been fortunate to have controls such that we haven't seen any of that. You always worry about the known unknown, right? But uh, yeah, we we keep an eye on that. We do have some portions of our business that do rely on GPU. So right. it's it's one that is an intriguing vector that it's that targeted to GPU heavy operations. So it's one that, that we've got an eye on, but it's not not something you see every day for sure. <laughs> right. And well, and, and even Google ads getting compromised isn't something you see every day. I mean, I, I actually was fortunate enough to find some malware running in a Google ad back in 2016, and there haven't been a whole lot of those since. But every once in a while, people seem to be able to do a runaround on Google and, uh, and get the stuff injected. So Yeah, what's interesting there is they seem to do a, a quite a good job keeping the ads clean the play store that's uh (laughs) more of a a struggle there and you would think that it would be the other way around give sure the numbers involved right right yeah yeah um by playing the numbers absolutely the the ads wouldn't be a much better target you would think um so and that was our last threat for the week right awesome If you want to dive deeper into this week's trending threats, be sure to check out the interactive Fletch newsletter and Trending Threats app to see all the stories we talked about and more. Now, on to our special guest interview. That was great. Thank you for running us through those, Darian. We'll now turn to Todd for some timely advice on vulnerability management. But first, Todd, tell us a little bit about your background and and how long you've been fighting the good fight when it comes to security and vulnerabilities. Sure. I I used to think I had a a somewhat interesting and unique background and path to security. And then I I listened to your show from last week and your guest. Kathy Wang. Yeah. Yes. Kathy Kathy Wang. She's like, oh, yeah, I started I started as an electrical engineer. I'm like, oh, that sounds familiar. So uh, (laughs) so I've got got, I started uh, I've got electrical engineering undergrad from the University of Dayton. And then from there, I, I had done I designed chips and done electronic design at Motorola Semiconductor in Austin. Back when Motorola had a semiconductor product sector. And uh, I'd heard Kathy mention that she had some chip design background. Like, it's okay. This is, uh, (laughs) I've found uh, found my industry doppelganger. uh, Yeah. And uh, after doing that, I I moved up to uh, the Schaumburg location of Motorola and was working in their uh, corporate labs there. Went back to school and got my master's in computer engineering 
uh, over at Northwestern. And that was part of an intentional pivot. One of the things I liked uh, most about integrated circuit design is this wor Unix workstation I got to have on my desk every day and live and breathe <laughs> in the Unix world. It was HP UX, and that didn't, that didn't even deter me. Can you believe it? The, <laughs> And so and one of the benefits I had at uh, Motorola uh, on this HPUX-based uh, design team was a really great system administrator, uh, Zach Rivette uh, down there. And this was, I've, I've been around long enough that you know, I remember NCSA Mosaic 1.0. And we were a few years beyond that, but not too far. And he mentioned the bug track mailing list. And mm. he says, oh, you know, right. this web surfing you're doing isn't necessarily all safe. And then, you know, he introduced <laughs> me to some of the security updates that were coming for the web browsers. And that whole, that, that kind of turned on a light bulb for me. And so I was a bug track subscriber. I'm hoping this date is right. Since before, well, about half a decade before the... The turn of the millennium, as it were. Wow. And so I had been you know, peripherally interested in that as I continued my chip design career. And so when I went back, had the opportunity to go back and pursue my master's full time, I went computer engineering and I was very intentionally pivoting into IT. When I got out, I attended a career fair where IBM uh, locally had a booth there and I ended up becoming an IBMer for 10 years and so very oh, wow. proud of that time. So initially in network um, management, and I didn't even let having to work with Tivoli deter me. Um, <laughs> Everybody's favorite. <laughs> yes. So I was working, I was working on uh, Ipso firewalls, Nokia based firewalls, and we're doing network management and configuring SNMP traps for handling those in big yeah. data centers and that. And one of the interesting things uh, in IBM, particularly at the time, is that they had the forethought to do a notion called shared application assessment. And what yeah. this was is that if you owned an application that was used in their universal server farms at the time, mm -hmm. uh, you needed this team to assess your application stack and look at it from the perspective of making sure that it didn't enable customer A to see any of customer B's stuff. So they <laughs> called that a shared application assessment. Wow, yeah. And it, uh, in came a team of people at IBM with the job title of ethical hacker. Okay. And this was about the turn of the millennium. This was okay. right in the early aughts. Early aughts, um, okay, yeah. And I was like, oh my, here is the opportunity. So during <laughs> that engagement, this brilliant guy, Clint Ruho, had just blew up one of our primary tools and discovered and wrote exploits for three zero-day remote route. Wow. And I got to open them, uh, open those bugs with the vendor who had a public tracker for bugs. And I've never seen bugs fly off a public tracker and disappear uh, faster <laughs> than when I typed in that we had three uh, remote routes on wow. the flagship project. So that kind of opened me the world that, oh, this isn't just hobbyist. So you can yeah. You can do this full time. So, so that's actually ethical. great. You were getting exposure to both the attack and the defend perspective before we were really talking about purple teaming. Right. So it was it was just right place at the right time. And I and I found out that that group was hiring based on looking, you know, trying to help somebody else get a job. I was in the internal job postings looking for yep. a buddy. And then I was like, oh, they're hiring uh, one of these ethical hackers. So I ended up interviewing with them and 
they you know at the time they're uh, it's like well i guess i don't have to ask you what what a firewall is and what it does <laughs> since you've been working nice. with them and uh, i said i don't know how to break anything it's like oh we can teach you that as long as you've you know are comfortable in multiple operating systems and you know what a firewall is and how it works and and what tcp is and and all that happy stuff we can teach you the rest and uh, And, so so that's what happened that eventually led you down the path to vulnerability management which you've been doing for quite some time now right i mean vulnerability management has been a huge part of Mm -hmm. your job and i think it's something I don't know anybody, any organization, small, large, it doesn't matter, that still Mm. doesn't struggle with vulnerability management. And while folks like you have, you know, you've studied a lot, you've started developing programs. I think, you know, some of our listeners that may be at smaller orgs, they Mm. don't even know where to start. That's the problem. And then when they do get started, they often make a lot of times the same mistakes that everybody else does. So talk to us a little bit about how people can get started and what the things you should be aware of as you're going down this path. Yeah, yeah, that that was winding a, a around to to that position after my time with as ethical hacker getting to see how easy it is to break and penetrate especially when uh, unpatched software um, is available. <laughs> right. I had this foolish notion that what would make me a better penetration tester is getting over to the blue team side and seeing seeing the uh, intricacies of fixing some of these things and at the very least it'll make me write more actionable interesting penetration test reports that aren't so ivory tower and i'm sure we've never seen an ivory tower penetration test so so that was uh, always my motivation and and when i had the opportunity to come over to the blue team side about 10 years into ibm i I left the ibm um, uh, iss x force at that time and uh, came over to that so one the so early you left opera- big blue to go be blue it sounds like wow <laughs> and this this is why you're a fantastic host robert because that i'm writing that down i left big blue to that's wonderful that's probably gonna go on my linkedin profile at some point. um <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so pretty quickly after you know, I came into this uh, financial organization where we had a, a security manager and only two other dedicated uh, security headcount at the time. One of those resources was primarily had uh, his head in a checkpoint firewall, you know, debugging uh, VPNs and qualification VPNs for various clients. Uh, all day. Uh, the other guy came from a, a mainframe background, and he was primarily a fantastic Perl scripter and Bash scripter, oh, wow. uh, automating some some of the security tests. So I was uh, kind of the the first somebody that really came from something that we would call today a security engineering background. And one of the first things I identified was, yeah, we're doing external vulnerability scanning, but what are we doing internally? Because my pen testing oh. background informed me what sort of Swiss cheese you're dealing with (laughs) once you get past the crunchy outside of the networks and how easy it is to move laterally because very few companies at the time uh, had an internal vulnerability management program. So when you're getting started with that, everybody will tell you, you know, you got to start with inventory. You got to know what you got. You can work on that for a decade and still not feel like you're totally on top of it. Right. I right? I've never been in a single place yet that has no. fully 
documented their inventory. And and now that things are moving to the cloud, it's even harder because your inventory may change on a daily, hourly basis, right? Well, it's it's both harder and easier, I'd argue. So it it's harder in the sense that you've not only got all your on-premises stuff to, to figure out and where it all is. Right. Uh, and depending on how many locations you're dealing with and how many data centers, you know, rogue IT, how many third parties <laughs> uh, your various people in the company have contracted. Finding yeah. out where all your stuff is is hard enough there. You add the cloud to it and you think finding out where all that is, if you've at least got some centralization as to where all those cloud resources get spun up, mm. and, you know, you've got everything within your AWS organization. Right. There are tools out there that actually make that discovery relatively simple as long as you don't have rogue cloud going on as well yes well yeah more money more problems right (laughs) yeah that is a tough thing so finding out where those rogue clouds are um is difficult but if you've got everything if you can get ahead of it at at first with people getting started with this i would say try to get everything into one amazon organization and then you've got some cloud posture management of tools out there that do a really good job finding all your vulnerabilities just leveraging the APIs of the cloud provider and not having to do the yeoman's work of setting up a vulnerability scanning program and getting (laughs) that vulnerability scanning program to have a high percentage of credentialed scanning where you can see all the visibility on your endpoints. Authenticated scans are big and that's one of the mistakes people make is not enabling and making that happen. The other one I see a lot of times, so now now a company's got those scans and I see this happen a lot. People will Mm -hmm. be running the scans and invariably they've got, depending on the size of the company, tens to hundreds of thousands of vulnerabilities that all show up. And I I think analysis paralysis just sets in. Most companies can't patch everything, right? What have you seen works and what advice would you give to folks that all of a sudden are inundated with just thousands of vulnerabilities? It remains a big problem. Um, You know, even if you've got for the small organizations, even if you've got, you know, a dedicated security person, there's too much for that person to do and worry about to to do that tremendously well without a whole lot of help on the automation front. So where to start? Having threat intelligence that tells you these are the things that are most to worry about is certainly helpful. One of the things that uh, is a, is a good go to is uh, CISA, CISA's uh, known exploited database. Ah, uh, yes. And that's co-opted into an awful lot of uh, other tools. I think Fletch is, uh, is certainly leveraging that. Uh, you, you get that in a lot of your uh, vulnerability scanning tools like um, Nessus and Qualys. Mm-hmm. They'll leverage that threat intelligence. Is this thing being exploited or not? I would tell people getting started, like, you may find some vulnerabilities get a whole bunch of press and the named vulnerabilities that have come up now and they may get real catchy names and sometimes they might be like tortutron (laughs) tortutron yes tortutron ask for it by name um i'm trying to think of what the name of that um what's that side channel bug that was in intel cpus that so much was made of uh roheimer is that what you're referring to no. Um, it, or Spectre? About, Spectre? Spectre. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was that, like around 2015? Yeah. Uh, right. And Well, <laughs> and, and people were going nuts because, you know, Spectre, oh, my God, this is, you know, game changer. That it has 
Has there been a practical exploit of that ever? <laughs> but I bet your boss came to you and said, I read about this. Exactly. Right? <laughs> and so so that's the double-edged sword of the media splash. I've got uh, one guy on our infrastructure group that is somewhat in frustration over the grading of a given vulnerability was, you know, is our CISO Brian Krebs? And is, uh, <laughs> you know, or do we have a CISO that's making better decisions than that? Uh, or when we're grading uh, of our business. So Brian Krebs, for those who don't know, is a very well-known security researcher and has got a very highly trafficked blog. And people and pay a be- lot of attention to the stuff that shows up in that blog. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So if so, you may have a lot of vulnerabilities out there that are high enough profile in media that'll mm-hmm. get your higher ups asking you questions about them, but developing the triage ability to know for your environment, what's a, I need to jump up and down and, and wake people up to patch this right. um, versus something that, eh, you know, like Spectre, you've, <laughs> you've got a lot of problems, but that probably isn't one of them. Cause you know, you need a local toehold to do anything with that one anyway. So being able to triage those things, the known exploited flags in various tools is certainly a great place to start. But even if you filter down to those, you've probably got hundreds to thousands of problems still there. So among those, you know, your CVSS scoring can certainly guide you in, in what to knock off first. If you've got a lot of fleshy humans behind keyboards at your company, all your web browsers and your whole endpoint stack of office software and anything that's going to open anything via email or right. anything that's going to be at the pointy end of the web. So web browsers that might stumble over your the malvertising campaign we were talking about. Right. We've talked about this hypothetically for a long time to encourage infrastructure folks that, yeah, browser patching is a big deal. And here we here we got it on leading the news this week that Malicious ads, yes, they're a thing, and they've even happened to Google. <laughs> and let alone think of the the smaller ad aggregators and sellers who don't have a ginormous team to put together to screen those ads. Right. You know, if, if Google's struggling to get that right, just assume you're at the pointy end of very nasty code anywhere yeah. you go with a web browser or uh, anything your email client can render too. And if you need guidance on that, right? I mean, we can't we can't tell everybody all the things you could do, but the Center for Internet Security, CIS, their top 18 controls are a great place to start. And they've even broken it down into levels. So if you're just starting off, achieve level one, of hygiene across the controls. Um, and, and, you know, level one, I, I don't know if it even touches all of the controls, but that's a great place to start. I know that when we were talking before the recording started, you had actually mentioned just standardized image can be a great tool for a small company to use. If you have everything standardized and under control, so you're not bringing your own browser and you're not, right, everything else, the things that shouldn't be there stand out really quickly, especially in a small org. It does. And, but getting that discipline from the jump in a a small org that grows organically, you know, small orgs usually don't start off with a dedicated IT guy. And if, if, if they do, is it somebody that's come from a big enough place that even knows about some yeah. of the standardization and like right. SCCM or, or, you know, third party patching 
uh, plugins for SCCM or right and you know, IT guy or IT woman um, just to make sure we're, right. we're being inclusive. No. But yes, no, that's absolutely. They they may have a part time person doing mm-hmm. their IT, and that person also now has to do the patching and all the other security stuff that they're not even experts in. Right. So given the way that organizations grow, you're certainly probably not starting out with a standardized image. You've right. probably got somebody doing, you know, standalone boxes and manually joining them to domains <laughs> and not using MSDT uh, to, you know, deploy standardized images. But right. if you can get there, the dividends are huge. And then it's, it's been often said that, you know, what we call good security now and good hygiene now was just good system administration you know, back in the day <laughs> yes. and getting to the ability to do good system administration is something that leaders need to put a high priority on to allow mm. their person or their small IT team to be able to move quickly when there's a, fa- a high velocity threat like a weaponized browser exploit or something that's out there. Because right. if on Monday you don't have something where I can push out a software update to all my machines with very minimal effort, if you need to patch, you know, intraday on a Wednesday because of a high velocity threat that's affecting everybody, doing yeah. that manually is just and not going to work. No. And if you can't justify that for security's sake, We've got lots of good stuff in the news now to show that it's also a good business reason. Look at what happened to Southwest because they didn't put in, it wasn't a security thing. They didn't focus on their IT. They should have, they should have treated IT as not a, a, you know, a a loss center, but uh, as a critical part of their profit center. And, and I don't think they were. Yeah. Yeah. When there's, when there's a uh, security and uh, infrastructure as a cost center, ethos in an organization, I think increasingly you you simply can't do business that way because every business is so IT reliant. Yeah. That's great insight. We're uh, we're at the top of the hour. So um, I'm going to thank you so much for coming in. This has been fabulous. Darian, great burn down today. And to everybody out there, thank you so much. We'll see you next week where we have a special guest coming in. You actually may know him, Todd. I'm going to have Aaron Didier come in and talk to us a little bit about threat intel research. So stay tuned. Yeah, Aaron's awesome. But in the meantime, take care, everybody. Really appreciate it, Darian. Robert, thanks for the opportunity. (laughs) You bet. Thanks. tuning into The Threat Show. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and interact with us on Twitter at The Threat Show. Also, be sure to subscribe to Fletch's interactive newsletter and Trending Threats app to go deeper into the stories we discuss. Be sure to stay tuned to stay ahead of threats. 